Welcome to another episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults will explore some of my favorite moments in North American and European trans history. I love history because it's my favorite kind of gossip. Scandalous, sensational, and most importantly of all, not about me. Directly, anyways. In our first three episodes, we took a look at trans people in the 1970s across North America. More specifically, we looked at trans women, mostly of color, and how they organized on the streets and appeared in rock music. But for our very special Valentine's Day episode, we'll be breaking away from this and moving across the Atlantic to the United Kingdom. We'll also be moving several decades back in time. And perhaps most significantly for some of our handsomer listeners, we'll be discussing trans men's history. The story I'll be sharing with you in this episode is one of my favorite scandals from early trans history. It's got everything, a world war, unmonitored hormone usage, aristocratic titles, illegal surgeries, moments of spiritual revelation, the world's first trans phalloplasty, betrayal, and a doomed romance. The stars of our story include my own personal FTM history crush and a trans woman who made some seriously questionable decisions. Before we start, I just want to let you know that I am suffering from a cold, so I apologize that my already nasal voice is probably even worse this time, but I wanted to get this episode out on time, so here we are. The research for this episode is derived primarily from the work of Liz Hodgkinson and Pagan Kennedy, whose two books on the subject were invaluable, if perhaps not beyond critique. Before we get started, I'd like to take a moment to dedicate this episode to the memory of our dearest hussy, the party bottom herself, Bryn Kelly. From one huss to another girl. So join us for the tragic love story of Michael Dillon and Roberta Cowell, the original MTF for FTM couple. Lawrence Michael Dillon was born May 1st, 1915 into an aristocratic family. His life would be marked by tragedy Within 10 days of his birth, his mother died. Michael's grieving father, the eighth baronet of Liz Mullen, did what a lot of upper-class men did when faced with single fatherhood. He shipped baby Michael and older brother Bobby off to live with spinster aunts in the village of Folkestone, Kent, England. The aunts would raise the two children with little input from their father, who took up residence in London and did not visit. They would only see their father on Christmas, and it became rapidly apparent to Michael that Bobby was the favorite. Maybe his father blamed Michael for his wife's death, 
Or maybe he simply was more interested in Bobby because Bobby was a boy and Michael didn't appear to be one. Life with the aunts was a struggle. Aunt Toto reigned over the others as a bit of a miser, eventually becoming a hoarder who refused to pay for more than the barest necessities. The details could easily have come out of a Victorian Gothic novel. Though, perhaps because those were too close to home, Michael preferred Boyce's adventure novels, of which he collected many. Like a lot of trans youth, Michael Dillon chafed at the gendered expectations thrust upon him, and early on discovered that he was attracted to girls, though nothing ever came of it. When his father and uncle died within three weeks of each other, the baronet title was passed down to 10-year-old Bobby, along with the family estate in Ireland. Michael was incensed. He knew that no matter what happened, that title could never be his, as he believed it rightfully should. Why should Bobby always get the good things in life? Why should Michael be forever held back by his sex? Around the age of 14, Michael began binding. He used a belt tied tightly across his chest. But when a girl at school discovered this, she told him that he would get cancer and he was frightened off from it. More than anything, Michael longed for a boys' uniform. As it was, he wore a blazer and skirt, causing him to be subject to constant transphobic harassment as passersby obnoxiously tried to determine whether he was a boy or a girl. Speeding forward a bit, Michael finally got free from the grip of his spinster aunts when he boarded the train to head for Oxford. College life allowed him to breathe for the first time. On campus, he met several lesbians, most of whom fashioned themselves after the protagonist in Radcliffe Hall's The Well of Loneliness. It didn't appeal to him, though he read the book and accepted a friend's diagnosis that he was homosexual. Michael's friend encouraged him to take a woman. And can I just stop here and mention how much that turn of phrase really does it for me? Oh my god. Anyways, he didn't like the idea. In his unpublished memoirs, he wrote, This advice was given to me again and again, even by well-known doctors, yet never did I take it. Somehow it seemed wrong. The truth is, loving women as a woman held no appeal to Michael because he knew that he was a man. What did appeal to Michael were two things, science and rowing. Despite his efforts, Michael was not allowed to join the men's rowing team with their sharp uniforms and world-class status. So he did what was open to him. He joined the women's rowing team, which he quickly became president of. During his time as president, he would eventually win a University Sporting Blue Award, which I'm told was a pretty big deal at the time. He briefly fell in love with a straight, blonde teammate who, in his words, looked like Shirley Temple. But when he confessed his feelings, she crushed him, saying she absolutely would fall in love with him if only he were a boy. She promptly married someone else. During this time, Michael petitioned to have the women's rowing team adopt a more masculine uniform. The only footage we have of Michael Dillon's early life comes from this time. There's newsreel footage of him rowing. 
And here's a nice looking crew. They're the dark blues in training for their race with Cambridge. And here is where Michael's problems began in earnest. While rowing, someone snapped a photo of Michael's boyish look and it was published in a tabloid. The headline demanded to know what Michael's gender was and it caused a minor scandal. As a member of an aristocratic family, scandal was to be avoided at all costs. Michael was severely embarrassed by the incident. The Oxford life, where he could dress as a man, fit Michael well and would be a time he referred to again and again throughout his life as some of his best moments. Years later, he would write, Oxford, even now when I am supposed to have renounced the world and to have become detached from worldly pleasures, the thought of Oxford still has power to move me. He wanted to be an Oxford man through and through, well-read and powerful. It's here that he taught himself to smoke a pipe, something that would become essentially his trademark for the rest of his life. When he graduated, he took up work in a laboratory in Gloucestershire. The lab was key to what happened next, a series of events that would change trans history for all of us. It was at the lab in the late 1930s that Michael heard the magic word, testosterone. Doctors at various levels of quackery had been trying to increase levels of testosterone in men for the past two decades, including through such questionable procedures as grafting monkey gonads into men's testicles. They believed that by increasing testosterone production, men would be rejuvenated and perhaps a fountain of youth could be discovered. But it didn't work. Eventually, around 1937, someone managed to create the first testosterone pill that did work. When Michael heard about this, he more or less ran to the nearest doctor. It's important to note what was going on in the late 1930s and early 1940s. Magnus Hirschfeld was championing trans healthcare in Berlin, but was stamped out by the rising Nazi party. So there were several transsexuals running about throughout Europe, and many more who hadn't yet accessed medical transition. But because the press hadn't realized they existed yet, at least not in English, Michael had no way of knowing that there were others like him. During his time at Oxford, he'd made one friend, a fellow rower, who confessed similar feelings, and they'd had an intense friendship. But after Oxford, they seemed to have drifted apart. Whether this person ever transitioned themselves seems to be lost to history, along with their name. They would be the only other trans man Michael Dillon knowingly met, and he would write of their friendship and rowing adventures lovingly in his memoirs. Without any guide but his feelings, Michael marched into the office of Dr. George Foss in 1939. Foss had been experimenting with testosterone on women for the past two years in hopes of curing menstrual problems, of which he had some success. The lowered voices and body hair and increased clitoral size he chalked up as easy side effects that shouldn't concern anyone. But here was Michael Dillon demanding to use the drug to effect a sex change. He was intrigued, but required Michael to go see a psychiatrist friend before he would prescribe the hormones. 
Michael did, and when he returned to the office a few days later, he found Dr. Foss nervous. Suddenly, the doctor didn't want to help. But he handed over a bottle of testosterone pills and said that Michael could try dosing himself. Michael Dillon kept a meticulous log of doses and associated changes as he self-administered testosterone, providing the very first medical research into FTM testosterone usage. He was well-equipped to do this, working in a medical lab and with an Oxford education. And he was also, as far as I can tell, the very first trans man to ever use testosterone. Within days, people were snickering behind Michael's back because his secret was out. The psychiatrist had gotten drunk at a dinner party and let the whole story out in detail. Every private bit of gossip from Michael's life for the whole of Gloucestershire to see. Mortified, Michael packed up and immediately moved to Bristol. He saw a help-wanted sign in a garage and took the fittingly masculine job right away. There was no one else to take it. The war was on and most of the young men in Bristol were now on the front lines. Within just a few months, Michael was passing for cis with ease, the very first time that had happened in his life. It was a remarkable experience. But the other men at the garage continually outed Michael. It was a tense place to work sometimes. And then, as they seemed to always do in Michael's life, things got worse. The war came to Bristol. Michael, ever trying to prove himself valiant and masculine, signed up to sleep inside the garage in order to prevent fires from the nightly bombings. He and a new friend did this duty, for which they were provided hard helmets. Michael didn't bother to use his. He was so depressed he didn't care if he died in the bombings. But his new friend, Welsh teenager Gilbert Barrow, the only person in Bristol who didn't treat him like garbage, convinced him to change his mind. During this time, Michael began work on what would become the first book arguing for access to trans health care, Self, a Study in Ethics and Endocrinology. The book argues that homosexuals should be allowed to live their lives and that those who we might now call transsexuals or trans people should be given access to hormones and surgeries to change our bodies. But Michael didn't have a word for us. Instead, he wrote, those people, which makes the book a bit tricky to read. He writes for gender self-determination, the idea that we can only know a person's gender by asking that person. The book also argues for better treatment of intersex children. It's really revolutionary for its time, and it's still available. I was able to access it online through my university library, so there are PDFs of it kicking around in case you, dear listener, would like to read this piece of trans history yourself. When his young friend Gilbert Barrow left the garage, Michael sank back into despair. He wanted out of the garage, but with his identity documents still having his old name and worse, that scarlet letter F, he felt it would be impossible for him now to find work as a man. In summer 1942, things came to a head when Michael passed out suddenly on a boardwalk near the beach. He woke up in hospital to the sounds of the doctor ordering him sent to the men's ward. It would later turn out that Michael had hypoglycemia. 
But even more worryingly to Michael was the loss of control. Suddenly people could discover his secret. They saw his identity papers and that was it. The jig was up. Six months later, it happened again. This time, Michael was taken to the Royal Infirmary. When he awoke, an unnamed doctor told him he would help Michael take care of his problem with a double mastectomy. Michael had never met a plastic surgeon before. The field had only come into existence within the past decade or so and was much maligned in the press. But even better, after performing the surgery, the unnamed and frankly heroic doctor introduced Michael to someone who would help Michael change medical history. Again, Sir Harold Gillies. Gillies was pioneering plastic surgery from his clinic in Rooksdown in order to treat soldiers whose bodies had been mangled in the wars. Most importantly, he'd created a technique for moving skin across the body by creating a sort of suitcase handle that could be attached and reattached without losing blood flow. This would allow him to create the very first phalloplasty on cis soldiers whose genitals had been lost. Michael enrolled in medical school at Trinity College in Ireland while Gillies set about preparing to take him on for phalloplasty. In order to be able to perform the surgeries, Michael would need a diagnosis because of something called mayhem law, which I'll explain later. The diagnosis that best fit was hypospadias, essentially an intersex condition, which Gillies and others had begun diagnosing trans men with around this time in order to justify giving them hormones and allowing them to socially transition. Most importantly, hypospadias would allow Michael Dillon to change his birth registration to reflect his life as a man, something which had never occurred to him as being possible before. Over the next several years, Michael published his book and made regular trips to Rooksdown. There, he made friends with the many disfigured soldiers and had the world's very first FTM phalloplasty. You can see pictures of his results in Gillies's book, The Principles and Art of Plastic Surgery, which you can probably find at your nearest university library. While recovering from these many surgeries, Michael told his much younger classmates that his limp was the result of an old war injury. Michael was not the best student. His report card shows a C average, but this is largely because he was so tied up with frequent trips for surgery and long periods of recovery. As well, Michael became more isolated here. He was a decade older than his classmates, and the thought of women falling in love with him before his surgeries were completed terrified him. What if they told others that he was trans? Here he began cultivating a purposefully misogynistic behavior, which he writes in his memoir was a purposeful attempt to make sure no woman could fall in love with him. Anytime he suspected a woman might have feelings, he would casually mention that he thought women's mental capacities were limited. This is not my favorite part of Michael Dillon, let me tell you. But as far as strategies go, it seems to have been very effective. He wrote, With girls, one had to be careful. An evening's flirting at a dance was one thing and a relief, but no more.
Of this time in his life, Michael also wrote in his memoirs, the world began to seem worth living in after all. It was the first time I was able to start among people who knew nothing whatever about me and accepted me as an ordinary man. The relief was indescribable. Here's where things get really interesting. But Morgan, we just heard about the very first FTM medical transition. How could it get any more interesting? Things are about to take an unusual and life-changing turn, so buckle up, kids. It's going to be a bumpy ride. Around this time, Michael received an odd letter from his publisher. The letter was written by a woman named Roberta Cowell, a woman who shared the same affliction Michael had written of in his book. And even more intriguing to Michael, this Roberta wanted to meet. Roberta Cowell was born in 1918. She too came from an upper crust family, just like Michael Dillon. She spent her formative years racing cars, quite successfully winning many awards. And then she did as other young men did. She married and quickly had two children with her new wife. Roberta wrote in her memoir, Outwardly, I made frantic efforts to show the world at large how masculine and assertive I could be but I discovered that my unconscious mind was predominantly female. The war came and Roberta shipped out. She became a Spitfire ace, eventually being captured as a prisoner of war and put in a Nazi concentration camp, Stalag Luft One. after a piece of flak ruptured the hull of her Spitfire, causing the plane to crash east of the Rhine. Her time in the POW camp was horrific. At one point, the camp cook lost his mind and put ground glass into the prisoners' bread in an attempt to kill them all. Food was so scarce that in desperation, Roberta chased down the prison cats and ate them raw. While in the camp, she realized that if she was going to live on the outside again, she was going to do two things. One, build a brand new race car engine and enter it into the Grand Prix, and two, live as the woman she knew herself to be. There's so much to get into in this story that by necessity, I'm going to have to skip over some parts. But to summarize briefly, when Roberta got out of the POW camp and back to Britain, she quickly set about wasting her family's money on several attempts to make a world-class engine. And then she discovered Michael Dillon's book, Self, and they exchanged many letters. Finally, they met in London in 1949 or 1950, depending on your source. Sitting across from Roberta, Michael Dillon felt nervous. At this point, she didn't know that he was just like her. Roberta was under the impression that he was simply an educated man with an interest in her condition. And that's how Michael intended to keep it. But he was so taken with her that the words fell right out of his mouth. Not only was he enamored with her nascent beauty and femininity, Michael realized for the first time that he'd met a woman he felt he could truly trust to be his whole self with. No censoring of his backstory. No needing to keep a distance. Roberta was just like him. And perhaps she would be the only woman in the world 
he could feel comfortable becoming intimate with. His eyes basically turned into cartoon hearts is what I'm saying. After this initial meeting, Michael returned to his studies and promised Roberta that he would help her access hormones and surgery, care of his beloved surgeon, Dr. Harold Gillies. As he began to sort out this process, Michael started sending Roberta love letters. He'd write as many as two or three a day of increasing frankness. He wrote to her saying that perhaps she could be the one to initiate him into the world of sex. Roberta was, let's say, less taken with the prospect. At one of their in-person meetings, she claims that Michael whipped out his dick to show her and she was less than impressed with the results. Now, Roberta made lots of claims that are false, as I'll discuss later, but this particular story is probably true, as Michael's later Buddhist teacher recounts a similar encounter many years later, in which he offered to show him his new penis to prove that he was a man. But Roberta saw opportunity in this man. He had access to doctors and surgeons. He could help her. So she strung him along. They had one big problem, though. Mayhem Law prevented Gillies from performing surgery on Roberta. Mayhem Law is, or was, a part of common law in England, Canada, and the United States that basically says you can't mutilate a healthy body as that would deprive the country of a potential soldier. In this case, the issue was the orchiectomy or removal of testicles. But love-struck Michael Dillon wasn't going to let this get in the way of his beloved getting the surgery she needed, so the two of them hatched a plan. As I mentioned earlier, Michael was a medical student at Trinity College at this time. He was in his fifth year. The two of them met in secret and wrote up a contract. It said that Roberta was consenting to surgery at the hands of Lawrence Michael Dillon. That day, Michael Dillon became the first trans surgeon on record to ever operate on another trans person. The illegal orchiectomy went well, and afterwards, Roberta headed to Gillies for a vaginoplasty. After she came out of surgery, Michael was convinced that they would get married. He sent her a small box with a letter. In the letter, it told her to wait until he'd finished his final medical exams before opening the small box. Inside, he'd placed an engagement ring. Unbeknownst to her, he even announced their engagement to all of his friends and family because he was that sure she wouldn't turn him down. But having gotten her surgeries, she stopped responding. Roberta Cowell ghosted on him. Michael was persistent. He sent letter after letter, even going to England to try to hunt her down, but she was busy with all the other suitors who wanted to take the leggy blonde out on the town all of a sudden. Finally, the two met up in a restaurant. The gory details are unclear, but what we do know is that Roberta told Michael in no uncertain terms that he wasn't man enough for her, that she wanted a cis man, that she'd been using him all along. <sighs> Roberta, way to let down the team, girl. 
I hate this part of the story. Something all too familiar to me as someone who has been spurned by trans men for cis women myself. It's so sad that her internalized transphobia caused her to crush him in this way. And what's worse, this fateful final meeting would set in motion a series of events that would end in even more irrevocable tragedy. Michael was deeply wounded, understandably, by Roberta's horrific treatment of him. He was so hurt that he excises her entirely from his memoir. There is not a single mention of their relationship, but we know it happened because his many love letters still survive to this day. He wanted to be away from all women, from everyone and everything. So he signed up to be ship's doctor on a merchant Navy ship. Life on the sea was calmer and easier for him. His crew easily accepted him as he was, and there was no temptation to make himself vulnerable to a woman again. It also allowed him to devote time to his lifelong spiritual pursuits. First with the philosophical system of Gurdjieff, and related students of Gurdjieff like P.D. Uspensky, and then with the fascinating books of a man called T. Lopsang Rampa. Now, I have read Lopsang Rampa's books. My mother, who grew up in this time, was obsessed with his spiritual books and owned all of them, including the one that claimed to be dictated by his cat. The Third Eye, the first book Rampa published, claimed to be a memoir of a Tibetan Buddhist monk and depicted such fanciful scenes as encounters with Yeti, secret mountaintop oases, and most interesting, a spiritual surgery to open the third eye. It all sounds hokey now, but at the time, not much was known about Tibet, which was highly exoticized in the press as a spiritual haven where monks could levitate at will. And perhaps Michael Dillon saw a reflection of his own years of surgery in that pivotal scene where the young novice is held down and operated upon to open his third eye. Had Michael's own surgeries not opened his eyes to a new way of existing in the world? Michael wrote to Rampa, and quickly they became pen pals. He later referred to Rampa in his memoirs as Grandpa Rampa. The supposed monk lived in Houth, near Dublin Bay, even. How fortunate! Michael Dillon met up with him and found him to be a slightly tan, squat little man. Something didn't seem quite right. But then, Michael had never met a Tibetan before. He set himself up in a nearby apartment and visited Rampa regularly for spiritual instruction. Rampa encouraged Michael to go to Tibet himself, that it was his destiny to become a monk. In 1953, the Christine Jorgensen story broke in the news and caused a worldwide sensation. Michael was terrified and headed straight back to the privacy of his life aboard a merchant Navy ship. But Roberta? In what would certainly not be the last of such bad decisions, was furious. Christine had stolen her thunder, but undeterred, Roberta promptly sold her story to the press. Serialized in the picture post, the Roberta Cowell story is the first full-length transsexual autobiography in the English language. 
Interestingly, Cowell insisted that she'd been born with ovaries and was, in fact, intersex rather than transsexual. This is particularly interesting because this claim gets thrown around a lot in trans communities. While there are intersex people who also transition at some point, there are also many vague, medically dubious claims to intersex conditions on behalf of everyday transsexuals. I suspect this is an attempt to legitimize themselves in the eyes of cis people. Roberta appears to be the first person to do this in the English language, and as far as we can tell, there was no medical basis for her claims. Michael signed a four-year contract with the ship to act as ship's doctor, hoping all of the media attention would blow over in that time and that his secret would remain safe. But when they landed in New York City, a telegram arrived. It read, Do you intend to claim the title since your changeover? Kindly cable, Daily Express. He was then informed that a horde of reporters were waiting on the dock to photograph him and barrage him with impertinent questions. It was 1955, and the secret he'd spent 15 years hiding had finally been found out. But how had they discovered him? As the telegram alluded, it had to do with his brother's aristocratic title as the 8th Baronet of Liz Mullen. Information on these titles is held in dusty tomes called peerage papers, and there appears to be a lot of nerds in the UK who obsess over them. Michael knew this and had discreetly gotten one of the two available peerage books to update his records. They'd assumed that the other one would follow suit, but apparently it had not. How had anyone caught this one tiny line difference in an admittedly low-prestige gentry title? Liz Hodgkinson claims that she suspects Roberta sold him out, something there appears to be no tangible evidence to support, but given her behavior in general, I wouldn't be surprised. Never again would his shipmates look at him the same way as just another slightly awkward but handsome pipe-smoking crew member. It made Michael's minds up. Rampa was right. He needed to go to South Asia and become a monk. In the meantime, Roberta Cowell goes on to return to motor racing in 1958. Here's a clip of newsreel footage of her return to the track. <laughs> Roberta Cowell prepares to tackle the most famous hill climb in Britain, Chelsley Walsh. This is the playground of drivers like Tony Marsh, who holds the one and a half litre record. Roberta surpassed record holder too, but in those days she was a man. Her change of sex was registered six years ago. As Bob Cowell, she was a crack racing driver. As Roberta, she plans to be so again. There goes Tony Marsh and his one and a half litre Cooper. Chelsley Walsh is one of the toughest tests of driving skill. And if you want to stay to come back, this is certainly doing it the hard way. But Roberta's determined to get back into top-line driving, which she calls the only way of life I know. Someone's crashed. It's W.B. Crute in his four-liter CD Mercury, but the ambulance is on the spot at once and he's not seriously hurt. 
Roberta, it's a highly successful comeback. She won't drive flat out because it's a borrowed car, but she still breaks the women's record for the climb. Roberta would live a long life, mostly out of the spotlight. She refused to see her own daughters ever again after her transition, something that disappointed them both greatly. And she died in relative obscurity with a fine collection of race cars. Back to our heartbroken hero, though. Michael set out for India. His teacher, Lopsang Rampa, had been outed in the press as not only being white rather than Tibetan, but turning out to be just a plumber who'd never even stepped foot in Tibet. Michael, having been burned by the press himself, still felt sorry for his old mentor and continued a regular correspondence with him, despite being lied to repeatedly by Rampa. Michael arrived in India in the late 1950s. He had one goal, to join a monastery. There's a lot to be said about what went on in India, but this episode is getting quite long, so I'll just summarize it. If you want more detail, Pagan Kennedy's book, The First Man-Made Man, captures this time really well. After hiking up a mountain to find them, Michael was rejected by the monks he wished to join, perhaps mostly because of the language barrier. They directed him across the way to another retreat run by a man who'd recently been given the initiatory name Sangarakshita an Englishman of the lower classes who had become one of the first white men to convert to Buddhism. Undeterred, Michael did his very best to be his new master's novice. A lot of shop wood, carry water ensued. But the two did not get along. Perhaps it was a class thing. Sangharakshita was also quite transphobic when Michael disclosed his trans status. Still, Michael referred to him as daddy in their correspondence, something I think his teacher bristled at. But, you know, who hasn't called men who aren't their father daddy before? Just me? Okay. Sangharakshita wouldn't initiate Michael because according to the rules, only men could become that type of monk, and he didn't view Michael as a man. To make matters worse, the third sex, or hedra, were explicitly banned from becoming monks. So Michael left him. He set out to find someone, anyone, who would make him a Theravada monk. During this time, Michael Dillon wrote several books on Buddhism, which you can find on Amazon under the name Lopsang Jivaka. He also wrote columns for a local English newspaper. Finally, he found a Lama who would initiate him, even after being informed that he was third sex. He wrote to Sangharakshita to inform him, expecting a congratulations, but instead, Sangharakshita wrote a letter that he circulated to all of the important lamas, outing Michael Dillon and saying in no uncertain terms that he must not be initiated. Michael was, yet again, devastated. He fled the city and headed for the much-whispered-about Rizong Monastery, said to be the most ascetic and authentic Tibetan monastery still around at the time. During this time, the Dalai Lama fled to India as China overtook Tibet and began their horrendous illegal occupation that continues to this day. But Rizong was so far removed from everything that the conflicts barely touched it. He had some trouble crossing the border, 
but was able to find a way around it for a temporary visa, he found life at Rizong to be so much like life at Oxford, with a manly camaraderie shared between himself, a 40-year-old man, and his fellow novices, 10-year-old boys, with whom he did not share a language. Life was not perfect, though. He was overcome with lice immediately, and novices were given almost no food, as they were expected to have families that snuck them food. Michael had no such family. He lost 40 pounds, but he loved it there. When his visa expired, he was forced to leave Rizong. He spent the last few months of his life attempting to find a loophole into getting another longer visa granted. On his way to another monastery, Michael died. Now, there's a bit of confusion as to what exactly happened. Many sources say he simply succumbed to starvation and diseases that he'd picked up at the monastery. But recently, his primary biographer, Liz Hodgkinson, has claimed in a 2015 Channel 4 documentary that Michael took his own life. To be frank, I don't believe her. The only evidence to support this claim is a letter Michael wrote shortly before his death to his old teacher, Sangharakshita, asking him to forward his unpublished memoirs to his publisher in England. No suicide note survives, and it appears that Michael had plans to continue on his journey to the next monastery. And when you take a look at what's happening today, the trans suicide epidemic is in the news. Could Liz simply be trying to spice up his story for a modern audience? I can't say for sure, but it certainly looks that way from here. Michael Dillon's life was strange and groundbreaking in so many ways. He had no path to follow as he became the first modern medical transsexual man in the world. He molded both his body and his mind through hormones, surgeries, and spiritual exploration into a fascinating and, frankly, incredibly attractive person. You should probably Google him right now just to see how hot he was. I'll wait. See what I mean? Though his life was marked by repeated tragedies, the choices he made opened up a whole world for trans men to exist en masse as they do today. If only he'd run into me instead of Roberta Cowell, he might have had a much happier ending to his story. As it stands, Michael Dillon left this world a complete virgin, but also a key figure in our history. Thank you for listening to this episode of One from the Vaults the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults is written, recorded, and produced by me, Morgan M. Page. It is recorded in Montreal, Quebec, on the traditional territories of the Cree and Haudenosaunee. Research for this episode owes largely to the work of Liz Hodgkinson and Pagan Kennedy, as well as other sources that are credited in the show notes. If you like the show, please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever else these podcasts get put up. You can rate and review us on iTunes and tweet at me at 
Morgan M. Page on Twitter. Join us next time for another story from our trans ancestors. Good night. Oh.